This podcast episode is the audio from a recent presentation on improving your PowerPoint presentations. In the show notes, I'm going to post a link to a screencast of the presentation, as well as a link to the PowerPoint slides of the presentation. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo, and this is a presentation on improving your PowerPoint presentations. If you're an academic, I'm sure that you have sat through a lot of good presentations and a lot of bad presentations. But what separates a good presentation from a bad presentation? I believe there are three elements of great presentations. Firstly, eight key communication principles, which I'm going to go over soon. Great images. And finally, a good story. All good presentations have these communication principles or abide by these communication principles. Better presentations use great images, but the best ones combine all three and include great stories or a great overarching story. Here are the eight communication principles, and these are evidence-based principles that will help you that will help your audience rather retain more information. First is discriminability, then perceptual organization, salience, limited capacity, informative change, appropriate knowledge, compatibility, and relevance. Check out that reference in the bottom right of the, bottom right of the screen if you want some more information on these eight principles. But firstly, we have discriminability. Can your audience actually read what you're presenting? It's important to use clear and large typefaces that can be distinguished from the background. It's important that a slide deck doesn't say, look at me. It should rather say, look at this. So don't make fancy slides for the sake of it. It's just not necessary. Think about your message. Also, don't be that person who apologizes for text that is too small. You're the one making the presentation. It is completely up to you. Now, some common problems when it comes to discriminability. Firstly, make sure your typefaces aren't too small. Use a 20-point size as a minimum. And this should also apply to your tables. Also, make sure that your images aren't too low, too of a low resolution. Quite often, it can be difficult to find uh, images which look good on big projectors. So either test your presentation on a big projector or check whether your images are grainy when you zoom in on your computer. Also make sure, or also you, you also want to avoid your color hues not being well separated. Check whether your colors are too similar. You don't want to unintentionally camouflage your message by having color hues that are too similar. Now, the second principle is perceptual organization. Make your slides clear. Make sure you leave plenty of white space and make your titles clear as well if you have them on your slides. You want to make your audience understand the most important elements of your presentation. And to do that, you can use color, proximity, and shapes to help organize elements into important groups. You can also use shadows to subtly help content pop. On the left, we see a box without a shadow, compared to a box on the right, which has a shadow built in, which pops out of the screen. Now, movement is also very salient. So use animation, but don't go overboard. You don't want a presentation which has too many 
twirling words or images that are jumping in from the side of the screen. Be subtle about it, but movement and animations used well can really draw attention to important points of your presentation. The fourth principle is limited capacity. You don't want to overload your audience's working memory. A rule of thumb that I use is that it shouldn't take longer than 30 seconds to read aloud the text on a slide. If it's longer than that, it's too long and you're at risk of losing your audience's attention. The fifth principle is informative change. Keep elements consistent between slides. If you start changing up characteristics from slide to slide, even though you're trying to, you're trying to emphasize the same point, this signals change, even if you don't want it to. So make sure for the same sections of your presentations that they share consistent elements. The sixth principle is appropriate knowledge. Use your audience's knowledge to your advantage. If you're unsure about your audience, find out beforehand. It's also worth finding out if previous speakers will cover ground that you're going to discuss if you're part of a symposium. You don't want to repeat the same sort of stuff a previous speaker has said, especially if they've introduced your topic well. It's better to slightly underestimate your audience's, audience's familiarity with your topic. And a trick is to have slides with more information prepared if you're asked questions that are more in-depth. The seventh principle is compatibility. Do your figures suit the type of data that you're presenting? As much as possible, you want to aim to visualize your data rather than describing your data as text. The eighth principle is relevance, also known as the Goldilocks rule. Not too little information and not too much. One way of considering this is to reverse engineer the audience's goals and your goals. Just think about what does the audience want from your talk and what do you want from the audience? And that can help frame what you're going to present and how you're going to present it. So as I mentioned, there are three essential elements of great presentations. I've just gone through eight, the eight communication principles and the next point is images, getting great images. There are three important things, especially as scientists you want when it comes to finding appropriate images. You want ones that are high quality. You want a good database where it's easy to search using key terms. But you also want images that are free. It's very easy to get high quality images from a good database, but it's going to cost you. What you really want are all these three elements. And it's very hard to find this sweet spot where all these three elements intersect. But there are some new websites that are coming up that can do all these things. And one great example is unsplash.com. Make sure you bookmark this website as you can get high quality images. And there's over 50,000 with a good search function. And it's free to use with no need for attributions. Every single image that I've used in this presentation has come from unsplash.com. It's a fantastic website with a growing database. Now, a few years ago, I started doing something a bit different, a bit interesting in my presentations. Usually at a certain point, I would say something along the lines of, now I'm gonna tell you a story. What was interesting is that at this point, most people really started paying attention. 
they lifted their eyes from their smartphones, they stopped fidgeting, and they were paying very close attention to what I was about to say. It's incredible what stories can do and how much people pay attention when, they're, when you're about to share a story. And this is the final element of great presentations. Now, it's important to distinguish that uh, there's both micro and macro stories, and both can be useful. Micro stories stand on their own and describe an event, and they're usually tied to one slide, but can go across a few slides. It's amazing that months after a presentation, I get people uh, mentioning to me, um, oh, I still remember that story that you told, but they don't necessarily remember any of the specific content from the presentation, but they do remember stories which actually tell an important message as part of the presentation. On top of that, your entire presentation should also follow the arc of a macro story, which I'm going to go into. So what makes a good story? Let's look to Pixar, because Pixar knows how to tell good stories, and they all follow the same sort of formula. First, once upon a time, there was blank and everyday blank. But one day, blank, and we care because of blank. Because of that, blank, and because of that, blank. Until finally, blank. Now, how do we actually make our research into a story? I'm going to give an example from my own research using that same template. We've always thought that 24 international units was the best oxytocin dose, and everyone uses this. But studies weren't replicating, so people began to doubt its effectiveness. This is a concern, as we need new treatments for, for several psychiatric images, uh, for several psychiatric disorders, which are characterised by social dysfunction. Because of that, we tried a lower dose of intranasal oxytocin, and then we found that this was more effective than the 24 international unit dose. So, for a for a second example. Uh, health interventions have improved average life expectancies. And researchers have noticed that life expectancy hasn't improved for people with schizophrenia, and this is a concern. We explored a few possibilities and hit some dead ends until we found that increased risk of cardiovascular events independent of antipsychotics was the cause. And if you're presenting a project plan, consider how your research fits into the larger research story. It's never too early to start telling your research story. Most research follows a hype cycle, and each part is interesting. You just need to identify where your research is located. Now, there are several hype cycle stages and uh, several stories you can tell associated with, with each stage. The first hype cycle stage is early research, and the story you can tell is we're breaking new ground, and that's a great story and very interesting. The next stage of a research hype cycle is hype itself. Quite often, you need to tell the story that we need to temper our conclusions because of X, Y, Z. The next stage of the hype cycle is disillusionment. A great story here is that we need to reevaluate our approach, but you're always looking back. So if you're talking about disillusionment, you can tell there was a lot of interesting early research, there's a lot of hype, but now we need to reevaluate our approach. The next stage of the hype cycle is, is the so-called enlightenment stage, where you would say, we used to think X, 
but now we know why. That's a great story. And the final hype cycle stage is the stage of productivity where you can tell the story that we need to refine our understanding of X, Y, Z. Example an example that I've used in my research is of the oxytocin hype cycle, which went which has gone through uh, these five stages of early research, a lot of hype, a lot of disillusionment, and uh, what we're currently in, I believe, which is the uh, hype cycle stage of enlightenment. And this means that you can tell fantastic stories when it comes to your presentations and where your research fits within that. Here are a few practical practical considerations when preparing your presentations. Now, this is assuming that you haven't already tested your presentation with the projector you'll be using, which is quite often the case. Quite often, you'll be coming to a, a new room, a new lecture theater, and you won't be able to test this. So these are considerations assuming that you haven't been able to do this. Slide size. Make sure you use a standard 4-3 slide size. Not all projectors support widescreen, which is a 16-9 orientation. Now, for some reason, uh, new versions of PowerPoint tend to, by default, use 16-9. Make sure you switch to 4-3. A 4-3 orienta- dimensions will always work on any screen, uh, whereas if you use a, a widescreen orientation and uh, you don't have a widescreen projector, your presentation isn't going to look great. So always go with a 4-3 slide size. Like I mentioned before, avoid complex transitions. Firstly, these don't always work on older computers or older versions of PowerPoint. You never know what you're going to find when you're out and about presenting. And more importantly, these can be really distracting. Uh, A few transitions are good, but complex transitions and animations can be distracting, so avoid them. And finally, uh, compose your presentation in PowerPoint. I love Keynote for Mac. Um, there was quite a quite a while that Keynote was much better than PowerPoint, but I think PowerPoint is now caught up to Keynote um, in recent years. And the the Keynote conversion of the conversion of Keynote files to PowerPoint within Keynote isn't perfect, so I would always compose in PowerPoint. Um, that is unless you know you can bring your own computer and you can connect your own computer. But uh, just to be safe, go with PowerPoint. Also really important don't expect that you'll be you'll have access to your presenter view for your notes quite often a lot of people will uh, use these as a crutch and and that's fine i understand the difficulties of doing that especially if english or what you're presenting in isn't your first language but it's uh, i've seen a lot of people become undone um, coming up to the lectern and realizing they're not going to get presenter notes um, which is just the way the computer is set up if you really need notes just print them out and have them there just in case, but don't expect you can have access to a presenter view. It's also important to share your slides online. You can give your slides a second life by uploading them to Open Science Framework, which is what I've done with this particular presentation as well. Now, um, you also want to take every opportunity you can to practice presenting. Uh, it might sound a bit dramatic, but the difference between you landing a grant or a job may depend on how well you present. So take every opportunity you can. If people ask you to present, go for it. Uh, it's just incredible, uh, especially if you're uh, if you don't like speaking in front of crowds. 
any experience you can get can really help, but it can also help with how you're actually composing your PowerPoint slides as well. If you do have any questions or comments for this presentation, make sure you shoot me an email at daniel.quintana at medicine.uio.no. Thanks for listening. I hope this helped. That's all for this special episode of The Startup Scientist. I've had a lot of people ask me how they can support the podcast, and if you want to do that, the best way you can do that is by sharing links to the episodes and to the show on social media. I'd really appreciate that. I'll be back again soon with more episodes of The Startup Scientist.